The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Well, so we all have a general definition on normal. Let's highlight some synonyms. Average, common, everyday, routine, typical, standard, usual, expected. So why am I saying I'm not normal? And by extension, why police officers may not be considered normal. If you subscribe to the notion that we are the sum of our experiences, then you'll understand why I say we're not normal. It's not normal for that your daily routine is to respond to scenes of horrific suicides, fatal collisions, gang violence, domestic violence, random violence, abused children, homeless people suffering, people victimized, taken advantage of, injured or killed. It's not normal to respond to shooting calls where you watch someone take their last breath or stabbings that make you cringe when you see their injuries. It's not normal to stand next to a deceased person for hours securing a crime scene, waiting for the coroner to come and be expected to carry on as if nothing happened. That happened to me personally early in my career at my first homicide scene 29 years ago. And I can still describe in vivid detail the layout of the apartment, the colors, the smells. I can still picture the victim bleeding out on the floor and seeing his life go out from him. And honestly, I almost quit the next day. Everything I learned and experienced to that point, all the years of cop shows on TV, because everything on TV is real, did not prepare me for the reality of policing. It's not normal to watch videos of sexual abuse of children for hours, days, weeks, and months, cataloging the crimes for court and looking for clues to catch the abuser. I spent seven years doing exactly that. There were days if you came in our office, you might have caught a glimpse of hardened officers secretly tearing up, agonizing over images they'll never forget. It's not normal to see that such horrific things becomes your normal, and you tell yourself it doesn't bother you, but we all know that's not normal. It's not normal to be numb to things that would likely devastate many people and the rest of society. It's not normal to experience extreme highs and lows in one day. One minute you're typing a report, and the next you're responding to the local business being held up at gunpoint with shots fired, or your coworkers yelling on the radio for backup. It can happen that fast. It's not normal to work rotating shifts, work on holidays, birthdays, anniversaries, and maintain a semblance of a normal life. It's not normal to miss these moments in life and expect them not to take a toll on a marriage or a relationship with your family and friends. It's not normal to slowly lose your friends that aren't police officers. It's not normal to say they just don't understand me anymore or they don't know what it's like to be an officer. It's not normal to lie in bed unable to sleep because all the things you've seen and experienced play in your head like a bad movie and you can't turn it off. It's not normal that simply sitting in your vehicle is dangerous because the decal on the side says police. It's not normal to be hypervigilant, to never be off duty, to always be alert, aware, cautious. Ask a spouse or friend of an officer and they'll tell you, we don't turn it off. It's not normal to be expected to perform your job flawlessly no matter what. Truthfully, the public has a right to expect excellence, but not perfection. In the world of media, police are at times sensationalized into being heavy-handed thugs. But did you know that less than 1% of an officer's interactions with the public require the use of force? And that three one-thousandths of that, they're required to use lethal force. How many of you are defined by your jobs in less than 1% of your daily activities? 
If your only experience with police officers is being pulled over for speeding, it is possible you haven't thought about what a police officer experiences on a daily basis or what they experienced early that week, month, or year. Maybe now when you see them, you don't just see a man or woman in a uniform that took an oath to protect you, but a person who runs towards the things most would run away from. They do and see things, so you don't have to do and see them. We are blessed to be in a society where a police officer's normal is not your normal. If you're hearing this for the first time and you aren't a police officer, the odds are good the images that popped in your head made you feel uncomfortable or were hard to think about or picture, and some of the things you heard may have bothered you, and for that I'm sorry. But for myself and my fellow officers, this has become our normal. Most officers will carry the scars of the experiences they faced in law enforcement for the remainder of their earthly time. I don't tell you all of this for you to feel sorry for us. We proudly and willingly serve in the vocation that God has called us and equipped us to do, but we need your prayers. My hope is that today I've changed your perspective of officers and what they actually do and experience. What I ask you to do is take the time to get a true understanding of what officers do and pray. Pray for their protection, for wisdom and discernment, strength and unity, for their families, the salvation of officers, and that Jesus is Lord over the city of Winnipeg. Talk to the officers, they don't bite. Don't ask them to tell stories, just let them know you care. Maybe then you'll help them feel more normal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as you equip Moses to lead the Israelites with Aaron and his staff, just as you kept your promise to Joshua victory over the Canaanites, just as you gave Esther the courage to go before the king, you also equipped our officers for their tasks. Father, we know you don't call us to something only to leave us to fend for ourselves. You are with us, you provide for us, and you enable us. Father, thank you that you make all things work together for the good of those who called according to your purpose. Please hear our prayer as we lift our officers before you now. Bless and protect them and use their work for the good of our city and your glory. Supply them with the grace they need for everything that lies before them. Give them victory in situations they face ahead of them today and keep them safe. Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite uh, Tim and Brenda Noble to come up now and join me at the front. And um, I think it's long overdue that I formally introduced Tim and Brenda to our congregation. They have been part of our church family now for over two years, so it's kind of a little late in the game. But um, I wanted to do so. They are both seasoned missionaries, lifers, as we call it. They are salt-of-the-earth Christians. Um, and uh, I, I knew Brenda way back in, I think, 1978 or so, when my family moved to Kenora, and uh, she was just heading off to Regent uh, Seminary or School in Vancouver, and, um, and uh, they both actually have studied at Regent College in Vancouver. They also have both got their TESOL studies at University of Illinois. They also have been at Institute of Cross-Cultural Training in Wheaton. They met down there and uh, they got married in 1986. 96, sorry, 96, okay. <laughs> okay, 96, and, um, and uh, both of them have served overseas. Tim, Tim for four years was in China uh, teaching English and, uh, and uh, Brenda has been in Thailand for how many years now, Brenda, or before? 
nine years before marrying and then since 1996 been there. And Brenda has been developing and working at the school of, of um, language school at, at, uh, in, in Thailand with OMF. And Tim uh, had the interesting challenge of, of not only uh, ministering in Thailand after having spent much time in China, but he was uh, uh, planning churches, essentially. And the thing that surprised me, Tim, when you sent me some of this information was that the two of them together were the only Protestant missionaries in a province that has a population the size of Winnipeg in Thailand. And so uh, really quite a, a sparse uh, witness, and yet building up the local church, the indigenous church there in Thailand. They have two adopted sons, Nate and Pete. They're great in basketball and soccer. You've probably seen them around. And uh, here now in Canada, they're really focused on the mobilization of missions for Overseas Missionary Fellowship. There's a table set up out in the foyer if you want to know more about their ministry. I love these two because they're, they're people that are living it out here in Canada as much as they did in Thailand. They're involved in an Alpha program weekly at their home. They're involved in international Bible study. They are part of English conversation circles. And so cross-cultural ministry just bleeds out of these two. The Great Commission is on their hearts. And I, I asked Tim to preach this morning because I thought that uh, what, what better person in our church than to, to speak on the Tower of Babel than a guy that's been studying language for some time. So, so uh, Tim and Brenda, thank you so much. Let me pray for both of you and your family before Tim takes the pulpit. Father, our God, we're grateful for how you mix up the nations. You're bringing so many beautiful people to Canada the ethnicities of uh, the nations in this earth. Lord, we thank you that you also send people out to go and to be the salt and the light in this earth to win the nations for Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that you know, you've sent Tim and Brenda, Pete and Nate to us in these, this season of our church life. And so we're so grateful, Lord, for the kind of witness they have among us, especially among international students and immigrants to Canada. And we pray your blessing on their family, oh God, and we pray that our church family will be a blessing to them. And now as Tim unpacks the word of God to us, would you anoint his lips and open our hearts that we might receive what you have for us. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. 十四章十一节。如果我听不懂一个人讲的话，我对他来说是个外国人。他对我来说也是个外国人。So of course today I'll be speaking about the Tower of Babel. All right, yes. Uh, that was First uh, Corinthians four, fourteen eleven, uh, which uh, says. If I don't understand what another person is saying, then uh, I become a, a foreigner to that person, and that person becomes a foreigner to me. And yes, I have a fair bit of experience with that. So, thank you. Before talking about um, Genesis 11, I do want to introduce uh, Overseas Missionary Fellowship to you just a little bit. Um, 155 years ago, a young man by the name of Hudson Taylor was walking along Brighton Beach in, uh, in Brighton, England. It's a resort town. 
And uh, he had just left a church service praising God, lots of people praising God, and uh, just rejoicing in their salvation. And yet Hudson Taylor had a heavy heart as he thought of the people of China who never, thousands, dying daily without ever having a chance to hear about the good news of Jesus Christ. And um, he felt that God was calling him to start a new uh, mission there in uh, China. And he's wrestling with this because he didn't feel like he could carry the responsibility for this. And uh, as he prayed and as he walked along, the thought struck him. If God was the one calling him to go to, to, to start this mission in China, then the responsibility for the lives of those who would go would fall on God, not on him, as long as he was being obedient. And so he prayed for 24 willing, skillful workers to go to the inland uh, provinces of China. And thus began the uh, China Inland Mission. Now, the China Inland Mission had a, a few ways in which they were different. First of all, uh, the focus was to reach the inland provinces where no one had ever gone before. No, no Christians had ever gone before. No uh, Western Christians had gone. Uh, and there was no knowledge of the, of the glory of God. And uh, all of the missionaries that were in China at that time were along the coast. As a matter of fact, almost all of them were right in Shanghai, one city. And uh, some of them were thinking, well, we've reached China. We got to Shanghai. We've reached China now. Um, another uh, distinctive was that the headquarters for the CIM was in Shanghai, where the missions were, where the work was, where the ministry was, not off in London, where uh, Hudson Taylor was from. Also, there was a focus on cultural appropriacy, on learning the language really well. And uh, so, for example, Hudson Taylor wore Chinese clothes, and, uh, and he dyed his hair, grew, grew a queue on the back. That was, that was radical for his time, because all the other missionaries would laugh at him, say, what's this guy doing? But the Chinese started to pay attention to his message, not to how funny he looked. Where did you get these clothes? And so on. Um, another distinctive was in finance, that uh, they would depend on God for finance as opposed to appeals for finances. So 85 years later, after 85 years of ministry in China, the China Inland Missionaries were forced to uh, leave because of the communist takeover. And they were dispersed throughout all of East Asia. And uh, at that time, they started to notice other people groups and started working among the Thai and the Malay and the you know, Filipinos and so on throughout all of these places. Um, so it led eventually to a change in name. It was called the Overseas Missionary Fellowship instead of China Inland Mission. And the focus was really to bring the gospel to East Asians, wherever they are. So through God's grace, we aim to see an indigenous biblical church movement in each people group of East Asia, evangelizing their own people and reaching out in missions to others. And so that's why Brendan, that's what Brendan and I are uh, about, and uh, we're here in Winnipeg mobilizing people, uh, working to find people who really want to be involved in what God is doing around the world. And uh, 
So, if you're interested in finding out more about how God might use you, and God can use all of us in, uh, in what he's doing around the world, please come and talk with us. I'll, have a, I'll be by the table afterwards. And uh, they're not just for going, but if you want to pray, if you want to send, help send, if you want to be uh, helping to mobilize, like what we're doing, being an advocate for God's heart for the world, if you want to welcome, if you want to learn or help others learn about missions, please come talk with us. And speaking of learning, the perspectives course um, is, I'm, I'm one of the things that I'm involved with. We just finished a, a course out in Portage uh, looking at the biblical, historical, cultural, and strategic aspects of missions. Excellent course. If anybody's interested in that, again, talk with me. So I would like to now, um, trying to find my time. There we are. Okay. Um, I'd like to go on and start looking at Genesis 11 now, if we could. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and uh, burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the land, face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Let's take a moment to pray. Father, I do ask that you would uh, anoint the words of my lips today and our hearts as well. Father, speak to us that we may hear what you have to say to us through this passage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the usual take on uh, Genesis 11, on the Tower of Babel account, is that of the confusing of languages. Somehow, for some reason, God didn't like this tower, and so he confused everybody's language, and that's why you have to study French or German or some other language in school now. You're familiar with that, right? It's like, oh man, if they hadn't built that tower, I wouldn't have to. And also for missionaries. Missionaries, uh, you know, have this big barrier that they have to cross as they're going into other countries and uh, trying to meet the people, and uh, yeah, usually it's just confusion, right? So, uh, it, it, it takes a lot of time and hard work, and oh, if only they hadn't built that tower, right? But today we're going to dig a little deeper. We're going to dig deeper than that. Um, I mean, it's nice, it's fun to talk about the language, right? And every missionary, of course, has their stories about language learning. And I'm going to tell you my favorite story about language uh, learning today. And the reason it's my favorite story is because it's not about me. 
I'm getting a few people uh, interested there. So um, a friend of mine in China, uh, he was teaching English, and he wanted to impress his students on the first day of class. So he stood up and said to them, in Chinese, he said, I am your teacher. If you have any questions, ask me. Unfortunately, he had a little pronunciation, a couple of pronunciation errors, and instead of saying, I am your teacher, he said, I am your rat. <laughs> if you have any questions, kiss me. <laughs> yeah, uh, language learning does bring a lot of humility with it. But I should mention that humility is actually a very important quality for missionaries. If we want to reach people for Christ, we have to come humbly. And that humility is, ver humility is very, very important. And uh, also the process of learning another language is very important because it's, it's part of the bonding experience where you get to know people and you, you struggle and the struggle actually helps bond you to other people. So language learning, let's think of it this way, it's not entirely a bad thing. And it's very different from learning uh, in, in a school when you go to the field and learn another language. So. I just wanted to submit that to you. And while it's important to think about, it's, it's fun to think about the language side of things, let's dig a little bit deeper today. Genesis 1, uh, Genesis 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. One, uh, the whole world, what's meant by the whole earth there? Well, this phrase is pointing back to uh, Genesis 10, which is known as the Table of Nations, where each name there uh, represents a nation that was to come. And there were 70 of them, 70, if that's the traditional counting of uh, those. So all of these nations, all of them were together, and they're all, uh, all they're in just one place, and they could speak together, they could understand each other. If you look back at Genesis 10, you'll notice that there are some places where they said each with their own language. So there's a little bit of telescoping going on here in terms of you're looking further into the future. So don't think of this, Genesis, this Tower of Babel strictly as chronological, okay? Um, in any case, uh, the whole world is all of the people were together and they could understand each other. Sounds kind of nice, doesn't it? And as the people migrated from the east, or other translations say to the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And uh, the land of Shinar, there's actually a little bit of debate about this. Where is this? Uh, one of the suggestions is that it's actually up in Assyria, uh, because that's to the east of the Mount Ararat. And okay, there's some merit to that suggestion, but more likely, it's to the east of Israel, where the, the people who are reading and writing this story, they're thinking, oh, to the east. Okay, that's this area right here, which is now Baghdad, uh, was known later on, uh, uh, after Shinar was known as Babylon. And uh, yeah, it's the place where eventually Israel would go into ex exile. So it's getting people's attention when they say, oh, Shinar, we know that place, to the east. All right, um, verse three, moving right along. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar, or tar, basically. What is this? What's, what's important about this? This is an advance in technology. 
Think about this as advancing technology because what's happened is they have discovered a way to make, to construct buildings that will last longer. That water won't get in there and wash away the foundations and wash everything away and it'll all crumble in a short time. So uh, they're feeling pretty good about this. Yeah, we've got, we can make bigger towers. We can build this all up and uh, let's, let's all just gather together. And this one city, we're going to build ourselves a city, build ourselves a tower, and uh, yeah, we've got these bricks. And then we get to verse 4, which is really the core point of this, uh, this passage. Where it says, then they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Okay, so let's think about this. You've got this advance in technology, and this advance in technology has kind of got them feeling pretty uh, prideful, a little bit arrogant even. And um, they've got this I-can-do-anything attitude. And think about it. I'm not against technology. Technology is a good thing. We can use it really well, and there's a lot of good things about technology. But with it, sometimes can come, well, often, can come this attitude of, look what I can do. I can do anything. That plays into the story a little bit later on. And this is the key verse here in verse 4 where it says, let's build a tower that reaches to the heaven. This is essentially their declaration of independence from God. They're saying, we're going to build this tower right on up to all the way to the heavens we're going to be equal to God. We're going to just kind of do this on our own terms and build this tower up. And uh, they, uh, so they start building. And um, what's a, this, is, this is a bit of a problem here. They're saying we don't need God and we're going to just do what we want to do. Now, you'll notice that we've got a couple of very important sociological trends, uh, themes coming through here. Technology, urbanization, um, globalization. And notice that those are some of the three key, those are the the three key uh, moving factors in our society today, in all the world today. That's all right here in this story. So it's maybe not as out of date as some of us might think. Now, this towers here, this is sort of a a, a 14th century uh, imagination of what it would have looked like, but it was not so uncommon in that part of the world, especially after this time, that people did spread out to build these, what are called ziggurats. And the ziggurat is this tower, or it's almost like a temple-like structure, where it was used for astrology to try to predict the future based on the stars. And this one here is the, uh, the ziggurat of, uh, what was called the ziggurat of Nimrod. And some of you may notice that, that Nimrod was in Genesis 10, the one who supposedly built Babel. Okay, so, but that, that one there is up in Assyria, so we're not sure about the actual background on that one. There is another temple, another ziggurat 
down near Baghdad was not completed. And that was a ziggurat that was called Etamenanki. And some scholars believe that was the original Tower of Babel. Can't prove it. And one of the interesting things about this particular ziggurat is there was, it was, there was a king that tried to rebuild it. Nebuchadnezzar II, who uh, was the king of Babylon when the Israelites came in and were in, uh, in exile there. Look in the book of Daniel and you'll read a lot about Nebuchadnezzar, who was the one who was rebuilding this particular temple and this particular ziggurat. And uh, it makes me think about Daniel chapter four, where Nebuchadnezzar has had this dream and Daniel says, I'm really alarmed, don't do this, be really careful, you need to be humble and all that. One day, Nebuchadnezzar is out walking on his wall and he's exulting and he's saying, is this not uh, the great Babylon which I have built uh, by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Boom. Judgment on him right away. That's, that's looking back at Genesis 11, there's a lot of parallels between these two stories. A lot of parallels. And so what God is really judging here is this arrogance. And let's look at the uh, story of the, uh, the uh, Genesis 11 one more time here, and what is their purpose? It's so that we may not be dispersed over the earth, right? They don't want, they want us just kind of stick together, and we think, what's the big deal about that? That's kind of good. You want to be together? But what did God say in Genesis 9? In Genesis 9, after the flood, God commanded, fill the earth, God commanded Noah, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Why? Why does God care whether everybody's all together in one city or they're spread all over the earth? Is it cities? Is God against cities? No. If you look at Revelation, we're going towards a city, right? What's God against there? God's purpose is that the whole earth know of his glory that there be a witness to his glory in every corner of this earth. So um, their, their plans to not be scattered is in direct disobedience to God. So when we read of God's response in verse six where God says, if they do this, then nothing will be impossible for them, don't think of this as God's feeling kind of insecure. Oh my goodness. God's kind of rubbing his hands saying, oh, what are they going to do next? No. What's looked, what, what God is saying there is that when people are defiant against God, when they trust in their own uh, capabilities and their own technology, then they push for independence from God. Then we start thinking wrongly. We start thinking that we can do anything. We can do anything. I can do anything. You can, no. And there is no limit to the evil that we can do. 
Make no mistake about that. There's no, Romans 1, towards the end of the chapter, it talks about things and it talks about people who are, you know, boastful and they're thinking about, you know, they've set themselves up as gods and worshiping creator, uh, created things in the creator and then it goes on to say all these horrible things that they dishonor themselves with. It's basically saying when we defy God, set something else up as God, we're capable of any kind of evil. So the problem is a problem of the heart before it's a problem of the actions. We're not so different today. I'll give you a quote from Aldous Huxley, who was a, a light, uh, writer in the uh, early 20th century. And he said this, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning and consequently assumed that it had none and was able, without any difficulty, to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. Notice which came first, his, assum- his, his not wanting there to be meaning for the world. And uh, later on in the quote, he says, for myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaningless was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. The supporters of this system claimed that it embodied the meaning, the Christian meaning, they insisted, of the world. And the quote goes on, but we'll stop right there. Do you hear what he's saying there? He's saying, you know, all of these reasons, all these philosophies that we and all my friends are coming up with, what's what's behind that? We're in defiance against God. That's what's behind it. So you have to help people to understand first and foremost that God's will is good, his purpose for us is good, and that he is not restraining us out of some, I don't like what that does, you know, I, I don't want you to have fun. That's not God's way. He wants us to integrate into the real purpose and meaning of the universe and with him at the center because that's how it works best. So, uh, what about us personally? Are we, any be- are we any better? What do I do so that I don't need to depend on God? What do I do that I don't need to look to God to, uh, to experience Him so much? Uh, even as a missionary, you might think, okay, missionaries, they don't, they don't have this problem. We have this problem, of course. There are times when we want to take things into our own hands and maybe use some manipulative strategies, either in ministry or in support raising or any of these things, uh, so that other people will, oh, either feel sorry or they'll just, oh, yeah, 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 okay, I I feel guilty, so I'll, I'll become a Christian or whatever. But God says, no, trust the Holy Spirit, trust Him. Be faithful in your witness, but trust Him. And, uh, and then God will not allow us to, uh, to stray too far from his path. And I love Terry's sermon last week. Thank you, Terry, for that. Just look at the, the title, The Flood That Saved the World, right? We always think of it as the flood that destroyed the world. No, what's God saving us from? He's saving us from ourselves. And... Uh, 
Yeah, and that's, that's really, that theme is playing again here in, in uh, Genesis 11. By God's grace, he won't allow that in the lives of his children. He won't allow that in the lives of his children. So, we had that. So what are we called to? We're called to humility. Humility to recognize there's so much beyond our understanding, so much beyond our control, and so much that we can mess up when we ignore God and go our own way. God calls us to this humility in order to save us from self-destruction. Let's look at one more phrase from uh, verse four. Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. They just want to get honor and build up their own reputation. So what's the big deal of this? Is God against us having a good reputation or getting honor? I want to contrast what's happening here in uh, Genesis 11 with the beginning of Genesis 12. Hope I'm not turning, uh, stealing any of uh, Terry's thunder here uh, for next week, but let's just briefly look at uh, verses one to three there. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country to you and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that, so that you will be a blessing. What's the difference between the, the builders of the Tower of Babel, we want to make our name great, and God saying to Abram, I'm gonna make your name great. And one, judgment, the other, blessing. What's the difference? Basically, the, the, the difference is that in Genesis 11, God was, uh, the, the people there were seeking honor on their own terms. Seeking honor on their own terms, and they're, they're trying to get honor for themselves, and, and it was just gather, 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 and without thought for blessing to other people. In Genesis 12, God wants to, God is giving Abram honor on God's terms. And it is so that he will be a blessing. And it's a promise. And it's humility. It's, it's very simply uh, seeking, uh, that seeking honor on our own terms in disobedience to God not only uh, is not going to bring us true godly honor, but humble obedience when we leave honor in God's hands, grants even eternal life. That's Romans 2, verse 6. Or as 1 Peter 5, 6 puts it, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. So very quickly looking at the outcome, God came down. Notice that they're building this ginormous ziggurat reaching up to the heavens and God's looking down and says, that's interesting, right? You know, it's like they're building way, way up and God's kind of like, hmm. Wonder what they're gonna do next. So he came down, and that's in terms of honor as well. His honor is way high, way above ours. He confused the languages. We know that part. Led to division and they're arguing and bickering and uh, so they abandoned the city and the tower. I'm not going to work with you anymore. And they were 
as God wanted, dispersed across the earth. Now, I'm going to just very briefly mention the, uh, the verse that I started off with there in Chinese, that there are doubtless many languages in the world, uh, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and to the speaker to a foreigner to me. Um, please note that this is descriptive, not prescriptive. This is saying this is what happens when we don't understand each other. Not, oh, if someone's speaking another language, just cut them off. No, no, no. Christians should be the most welcoming people in the world. All right? So just please, I just wanted to toss that in there. That remember, we are to be a welcoming people. I want to look at Acts 2 briefly because a lot of people like to look at this in, uh, in uh, comparison here. This is one of the places where this, this uh, division by language seems to be reversed. And uh, language, but here's the thing, language is not the problem here in, in Acts 2. Language is not the big thing that's separating people. And we look at this here and we find out in uh, Acts, well, you know the story. First of all, the day of Pentecost, people from around the world are gathering in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit comes on the... Uh, the, the disciples, the followers of Jesus, 120 of them, not just the 12, because they're all, this mentioned earlier, and there's more than 12 languages mentioned, right? And he comes on them, and they start speaking in different languages, and they say, wow, these guys are speaking my language, and I can understand them. They're talking about the glory of God. And, uh, but we find that that didn't solve the confusion, at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered or confused in other uh, translations because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And then down to verse 12, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? They're still confused. You can hear it in their own language and they're still confused. And I think this is pointing back to Genesis 11 also. And I think that he's just commenting that you know, the people of uh, Babel were confused even before God mixed up their languages. He confused the languages sort of as revealing to them just how confused they were already, spiritually especially. So, and one of the reasons I can say that pretty confidently is that the uh, Greek word uh, for confused in, uh, whoops, sorry, in, in Acts uh, 2 there, uh, is the same word in the Greek Septuagint, the translation, the Greek translation of the Hebrew in Genesis 11. People were just as mixed up after hearing Jesus' followers speak in their own language as before. What brought understanding? One, Peter's explaining and the, and, and the, uh, the uh, explanation uh, that he gave, the sermon that he gave, and the Holy Spirit working in their hearts. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no, not gonna be any understanding. So we still need the Holy Spirit today to bring clarity to our mixed up world. That's why we pray before we start the sermon that God will be working in each of your hearts 
even as I trust that God is working in what I say. And now we get to the hard part of the sermon. (laughs) What does that say to the church today? Are we, the church, guilty of the sins of the builders of uh, Babel? No, maybe not the arrogance in quite the same way, but are we disobedient in a way that they were? God said in, uh, to Noah, be fruitful and no- multiply and fill the earth. Why? So that the glory of God would be known in every corner. So that the knowledge of Adonai, the knowledge of the Lord would be would cover the earth as the sea, as water covers the seas. They said, nope, not gonna do it. I'm gonna stay right here. How about the church? Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Please don't leave off that phrase, of all nations, of all peoples. Go into the, all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation, or as another transfer translation says, to everybody. Go everywhere. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, is that sequentially, okay, once we finish with Jerusalem, we're on to Judea, then we go on to, from Judea into Samaria? Well, if that were the case, then we you and I wouldn't be sitting here. Jerusalem wouldn't be finished, probably. You don't finish one job before going out. You do proclaim it, and then, but you gotta be, and, and I'm not saying let's only go to the other side of the world. Here is important. I, John, can I just say thank you for your, your, what you said this morning about the needs of this city? Huge, huge needs, and a thank you, and the f- police officers, for all that you do. Yeah, they are God's instruments. Uh, but let's not forget to the ends of the earth. That's very important also. That's Jesus' command. Are we going to go? Now, the question is, have we finished the job? <laughs> I think people need to move a little bit here. How many people think we have finished the job of evangelizing the world? That every place in the world knows about God? Hopefully, no, man, no hands. You knew that I wasn't, you, you know that if you raise your hands, you're in trouble, right? But uh, it's not finished. Yemen, I was just hearing yesterday, you know how many Christians there are in Yemen? Maybe 20 out of millions and millions of people. The province we were in had less than 300 Christians when we first arrived out of, again, the population all of Winnipeg. So what we've got here today, that would be all of the Christians in that province. The job's not finished. So um, what did God do with the power of Babel? He scattered them. What did he do with the early church? He scattered them through persecution. If you want to know more about the remaining mission task, Come see me afterwards, I'll have a video that, oh, no, I won't have a video, I don't have my computer with me, sorry. Talk with me, send an email to me and I'll, uh, I'll, uh, I'll send you a link to the video. 
160 years ago, Hudson Taylor went to, to, uh, to China before he started the in China Inland Mission. And he went to a place called Ningbo. And in Ningbo, he met, he preached, and a young man named Li Yongfa raised his hand afterwards, and he said, today I have found the truth. I have searched the truth all my life, and today I've found it. Henceforth, I will be a Christian. Afterwards, he talked with Hudson Taylor and said to him, how long have you known the good news in, in England, in your country? Hudson Taylor, hundreds of years. Li Yongfa said, what? Hundreds of years? My father spent his whole life searching for the truth and he never found it. My grandfather spent his whole life looking for the truth and he never found it. What took you so long? That was 160 years ago. And there are still places with no witness to the gospel. How much longer must they wait? Who will go? What's stopping us? Will we, like the builders of Babel, insist on staying in towers that we have built so that uh, we won't be scattered? Or will we be faithful so that we may soon see the day when people of every nation, tribe, people, and language in every corner of the earth might declare, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the earth, throne and to the Lamb who was slain and lives forevermore. I'm going to ask the, the team to come forward as we pray. Heavenly Father, it's sobering to think of the places where you have called your, your believers, your followers to go, and we still haven't finished. Lord, have mercy. And I pray, Father, that we may someday soon be able to have the day when people of every tribe, every nation, every language, every social group, every, every, every tribe will come together at your throne and declare your praises. Lord, give us the courage, the faith to follow through on what you've called us to do. And pray, Father, that we may go in humility, not in arrogance, whether it's across the street to our Jerusalem or to the ends of the earth. We commit this all into your hands and ask you'll open our hearts, open our ears, that we may hear your direction. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, I thank you for what you've taught us today. And we are reminded again that it is our heart that you are concerned about. I pray that you would help us and to use us to declare your name to the community, declare your name to the nations. Let us be part of that, Lord, but not because we're feeling guilty that we have to, but because our heart demands it. I pray, Lord, that you would give us hearts that break because some people don't know you yet and won't ever if, they don't come, if you don't show yourself to them. And I pray that you'd be part of that process. Help us to be part of that process for your glory. Bless each one as we go from here. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful day.